All right, if you would open up your Bibles to uh, the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. If you hit 1 Samuel, go left. And you'll find Ruth, a small little book, nestled in between Judges and 1 Samuel. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to uh, Ruth-tober. We will spend four weeks studying Ruth together. Uh, You may be wondering about the fourth Sunday when we usually have grace gatherings. Uh, The fourth Sunday in the evening uh, every year, uh, for the last few years, we've been doing a Reformation celebration. So that's what we'll be doing. We'll spend some time in here and then do our Reformation celebration, uh, or as I like to call it, Ruth-toberfest. So um, Ruth is a story that... As one article that I read on the Nine Marks website says this, approximately 0% of pastors invited to speak at a men's conference would choose the book of Ruth. If I had to guess, it's because Ruth is perceived as a woman's book. After all, it's named after a woman, focused primarily on women, and therefore gains the reputation for being a sanctified romance book fit only for ladies' Bible study. This is a real shame because it results in neglecting a book that would otherwise be a tremendous blessing to the whole congregation. One commentator says, this is one of the most beautiful stories ever produced in the history of literature. He's writing a commentary on Ruth, so he might be a little bit biased. But it's it's an incredible story. It's a story that has all the interesting elements of a good story. It's a story of tragedy, of bitterness, of loyalty, romance, in the the right sense of the word. It's a story of sovereignty. It's a story of redemption, of rescue, and royalty. It's an incredible story. We're going to look through a chapter at a time. This story has, in my opinion, four acts broken up into these four convenient chapters that we have in front of us. As we read through the stories, look through the story, we're going to be looking for things to to draw us into the story. Okay. Now, I will say, when I say story, I don't want you to hear false. Okay. Oh, he's just telling stories. You know that. I'm not using story in that way. I'm using story as a genre. It's a narrative. I believe it is actually a true story. So here we go. We're going to look at different things in in this chapter as well. We'll see some things that are going to draw our attention to different parts of the story. We'll look for things like repetition. In Hebrew narrative, repetition is going to be a huge part. It's going to draw us into the story, sometimes slow the narrative down and make a particular point. Um, You'll also see seemingly unneeded words. Why did he, the author, put that word in there? You might ask. Well, there must be a reason. the, um, The authors aren't using a word document where they can just, you know, 
use as many pages as they want. I mean, space is limited and actually difficult to come by. And so they're going to use, the, the, the author's going to use the space in this book um, very wisely. And he crafts this story in a particular way for a particular purpose. Another thing that's going to give us some insight is speech. When you read Hebrew narrative and even a New Testament narrative, when you read narrative, speech is going to give you insight into the character of the character. Does that make sense? So when Naomi speaks, you're going to get to learn what Naomi's thinking. When Ruth speaks, you'll get to learn what Ruth is thinking and what kind of character they have. There's four acts in this story, so let's get started with act one. There are four parts, I believe, to this act. The setup in verses one through five, um, or the setting, if you will. I like the setup because there's something interesting that happens in those first five verses. The author sets you up. Second, the second part is I entitled Return or Return? Question mark. There's a play on words on this one word, return. Should I return this way or return that way? And re- that term return is used many times in verses 6 through 14. Part number three is Ruth's uh, loyalty verses 15 to 18, and then finally the return to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem verse 19 uh, through 22. So, the setup. Let's read together the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons, his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So you see, first of all, that the setting is in the days when the judges ruled. You know about the judges, right? The judges is a time when no one seemed to be following the Lord. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. You see that repeated out, repeated throughout the Judges. There's this cycle in the book of Judges of sin, punishment, destruction, repentance, forgiveness. Sin, punishment, destruction, repentance, forgiveness, and on and on it goes. And the sin was significant. The judges, they go from bad to worse. Samson, the worst. Then the last few chapters tell us, in the in Judges, tell us how bad it really was. Men doing unspeakable things to women. Raping, killing, cutting them up into 12 pieces, and sending them to the 12 tribes. This is the setting for this book. Will we see this kind of sin here? 
or will there be a glimmer of hope in this difficult era? So it starts out this way, and immediately we see that there is a famine in the land, the land of Canaan. There's a famine there. And then there's this man who's from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. So throughout this book, you'll see some play on some of the names here. And I think there's some significance to some of the names uh, used in the book of Ruth. And here you have Bethlehem, the house of bread, the house of bread. And where's the famine? The famine is in the house of bread. And so this man moves to Moab. And now there's some speculation on whether or not he should have moved. He, he probably shouldn't have, and that's my opinion, but really, it's not a huge point that the author's trying to make. doesn't spend any time on that, but he does give some hints to the fact that maybe he shouldn't have moved. Because there's an assumption, Bethlehem, this is where God provides. God is providing the bread. He will provide, but not much time spent on that. And this story is about this guy, and this guy's name is Elimelech. Elimelech is a great name. Elimelech actually means, my God is king. And Naomi, Elimelech marries a woman. Her name is Naomi. Naomi means my pleasant one or my lovely one. Those of you who know the story know uh, what's going to happen with that. And then they have two sons, Mahon and Chilion, and their names mean sick and frail. Poor, poor buddies. <laughs> Probably a reference, though, to their condition uh, during the time of famine. It, it would, it's, it, you know, we kind of look at it and laugh at it, like, why would you name your kid like something terrible like that? But it serves as a reminder of where they have been. Sick and frail. So this story is about this man, Elimelech, and his family. But immediately, Elimelech dies. What is going on here? It's like the narrator has set you up. Here's this guy. It's like you go to a movie and you're like, okay, this is the main character of the story. And then scene two, scene one, he dies. You're like, what, what just, it's like a little bait and switch. Like, here's this guy and his family, and now he's dead. Like, oh, man. But it causes you to focus in on Naomi now. In fact, the story turns towards Naomi uh, in verse three. So, Naomi is left with her two sons, and their sons get married to Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they live like this for about 10 years. And then, verse 5, the sons die. So, immediate tragedy. The sons die. And the woman, Naomi, is left with no sons and no husband. The setting is that of tragedy. Difficulty. Right off the bat. Part number two, return or return. Verse six, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So there's a slight suggestion there that they maybe shouldn't have left, not sure, but or, or, or was this all part of God's plan? Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her daughters, her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
So the narrator starts to slow the story down a little bit. Move pretty quick. A lot of things happen in the first five verses, and now he's, the narrator's going to slow the story down. You notice the repetition there to slow it down. She set out from, they went to return. It says the same thing three different ways. Now verses 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi is about to return to the land of Judah and tells Ruth and Orpah to stay. You have to stay. And she, she makes a really great pronouncement. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So this is not just a passing comment here. She asks for the Lord's covenantal loving kindness. Okay? The Hebrew word there you may have come across in some of your studies is kesed. The Lord's covenantal loving kindness. Not just any kind of kindness, but this covenantal loving kindness. So we said, she says, stay here with your people and find yourself a husband. That makes sense to do that. Well, their response is they lifted up their voices and wept. And then in verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. They said no. They, they must have a really close relationship with this woman. They both make the decision that they're going to stay. You told us to leave, but no, we're staying. Ruth and Orpah say, we're staying. And then Naomi responds. She says, verse 11, but Naomi said, return, or turn back, as the ESV translates. Return, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Verse 12, return, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Man, Naomi expresses two more times, turn back. Don't go with me. Don't return with me. Return to your people. And she expresses her bitterness. Look at her perspective here. There's two things to notice here. First of all, she seems to have a serious concern for her daughters-in-law. Like I said, there seems to be a really close relationship between uh, the mother-in-law and the daughters-in-law, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. She seems to have a serious concern for her daughters-in-law. They, they need to go back to their people to find a husband. I mean, to be single in that culture as a woman was sometimes seen as a disgrace, and even seen as a curse. And Naomi is saying, look, go back. Find a husband, have children, get restored, get rescued there. Go back. 
The second thing, so first thing, she has a concern for her daughters-in-law. And then secondly, she says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And she is exceedingly bitter. And she's bitter at the Lord. Bitterness, as Jim Newcomer would say, is the refusal to treat someone as if they never hurt you. It's, it's an anger inside of you that you can't let go. Or you feel like you can't let go. And Naomi is directing her anger towards who? The Lord. I mean, skip ahead to verse 20. Listen to this language here. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. With me. Verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Verse 21, there's emphasis there where you have this explicit pronoun, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. He is to blame. Which is not totally true, right? I mean, if she's talking about food, she's wrong. But if she's talking about family, she's right. But the point is, the Lord is still providing. Still providing. Some of us have been really hurt by people in, the, in our past. I have. Some of you have been really hurt by tragedy. And the level or you know, perceived significance of that tragedy is not the issue. We're not trying to outdo each other on who has suffered the worst. Oh yeah, you lost that? Well, I lost this. So I must be more able to be bitter and angry. We all go through tragedy and we're tempted to feel like God has gone out against me. We say, why, why, does this, why did this happen to me? I don't understand. Why, God? And that's anger, that's bitterness that builds up inside of us. Maybe you're upset about the life position that God has you in right now. Maybe you're upset about circumstances that surround you. Maybe circumstances at work or at home or at school. Maybe your husband is struggling and it's having an effect on you and your children. Maybe your teen is struggling and you're asking God to change her, and it just hasn't happened. Maybe right now you're struggling through a very difficult season in life. Maybe you've just recently faced tragedy, or maybe you faced tragedy a while back, and you're wondering why you still ache. Why does it still hurt? And I'm not here to tell you that this pain will go away. What's your response supposed to be to all these difficult situations? Well, that's partly what this story is all about. Just wait. You, you have no idea how God is going to use that in your life. You don't know. You, you may never know. You may never know how, but you know who. You hear that? You may never know how God will use it, but you know who will use it. 
God. You know the Lord. Trust the Lord. And it's hard, I know. Um, I just met someone this past week that is going through something very difficult. And as I was talking to him about the difficulty that he is facing, he just seemed bitter to me, angry about the circumstance. Now, he was really hard to read, you know, because of his condition. And so I, I could totally be wrong about that. But if it is true that he is facing bitterness, my heart, I, in my heart, I don't judge. I, I feel like hurt for him. I mean, it is difficult to go through difficulty. That's why we call it that. It's difficult to go through tragedy. It's really hard. And, and I will be praying for him and will be praying that someone close to him will connect their life to his. So it's not easy, but trust the Lord. Trust him. As the song we just sang says, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. Now we get to see Ruth's loyalty. In verse 14, they, uh, Orpah and Ruth respond. They lifted up their voices again and wept again. Uh, the same way they responded in verse 9. However, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth clung to her. What, what, what's going on here? Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. It, it's, a, it's a picture of her leaving. And Ruth stayed. She clung. So Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth to return to their homes a total of three times. Orpah decides to return, but Ruth stays. So just wait and see what happens in this story. Was it okay for Orpah to leave? Was it okay that Orpah left? Of course. She actually has no obligation to stay with Naomi. In fact, it may be the wiser thing to do as we look at this situation. Find a husband, start a family, stay with your people. This is the life um, that you know. Like, you just faced significant tragedy. You just lost your husband. You need to be with your people. Go with your family. Your husband just died. Go be with your, your mother and your father. And this is counsel we might even give to people. So it's not actually an issue between right and wrong here, like Orpah was wrong and Ruth was right. Ruth simply acts out of the kindness of her heart. Ruth stays. She decides to remain loyal to her bitter mother-in-law. You feel some weight there? But look what Ruth says. Verse, verse 15, we'll start here. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. This is Naomi speaking. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is time number four. She's telling Ruth to go back, to return. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will, there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything put, uh, but death parts me from you. This is a huge commitment. It, it's, it's almost like a conversion. 
or a marriage vow. Do you see some of that in there? Like, my God is, your God is my God. I'm going to stay you, stay with you till death do us part. This is a huge commitment that uh, Ruth is making. And we think, really? We're going to make, you're going to make this huge commitment to this bitter woman who happens to be your mother-in-law? Really? It's difficult to live with bitter people. Do you know people like that or, or just angry, deeply angry, just wallowing around, head down, kind of jaded, easily ticked off? Do you see the kindness that Ruth has? Do you see her character come out in this speech? And it automatically ought to make us think, do I have kindness like this? You have no obligation to do something, but you do it anyway. You mow your neighbor's lawn. That's not my lawn. I don't need to mow that lawn. He needs to get out there, and it's getting long. You have no obligation to it. But would you think in those kinds of terms, how about doing your brother's dishes? It's not my turn to do dishes. What about cleaning up after your wife? We're tempted to think, I don't have to do it, so I'm just not going to do it. What do I, what do I gotta do to, to like just slide by without putting in too much effort? I mean, the Chicago Bears are playing right now. Let's get real. No, they're not playing this week. But. I just wanna slide by. And this, this says something about our character when we act this way, doesn't it? It says that we don't really care about people. We actually care about ourselves a lot. But this action with Ruth goes far beyond just doing kind things for Naomi. Do you see that in her words? Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. She commits to a person. To a person. I had the privilege of listening to some audio of uh, Roger DePriest doing some uh, teaching in Ruth, and I warned him that I may or may not quote him tonight. And I was I was on my way back from a wedding last night and uh, listening uh, to Roger uh, teach, and just like trying to remember and mark down without crashing <laughs> what he's telling us from Ruth. And he has some insight that I'm going to share with you these next couple of lines here. Ruth decides that she is going to be a channel of God's blessing. I love that phrase that Roger uses. A channel of God's blessing. To be a channel of God's blessing, she commits herself to a person. I'll I'll quote Roger here. You haven't made a ministry, quote, quote the best I can while I was driving. You haven't made a ministry commitment until you have connected your life to another person's welfare. Let me read that again. You haven't made a ministry commitment until you have connected your life to another person's welfare. So you might be a Sunday school teacher or you might be a youth staff volunteer with the teens or you might be an ABS teacher. But if you want to be a channel of God's blessing, you need to connect yourself to a person, to people. 
Notice he uses the term channel. It's where blessing continually flows, not just a one-time thing. So think about the people who have had the biggest impact on your life. I think about the biggest people that had the biggest impact on my life. Um, sure, you know, seemingly random acts of kindness, simple acts of kindness, are a fantastic thing um, and very kind to do. But the people who had the biggest impact on my life are those, or the, maybe the people who have having a big impact on your life right now, are those who have invested in you over and over and over and over. Continual commitment. Commitment to a person. Husbands, your wife needs you. Pursue her. Parents, your children need you. Pursue them. Invest in them. Disciple them. ABS class, you all need each other. Church, we need each other. Pursue one another. Pursue the difficult ones, even if they're bitter and like hard to be around. Do you see what Ruth is doing here? And the greatest example of this kind of commitment is the incarnation of Christ. Jesus comes to identify with sinners, especially seen at his baptism. At the cross, he takes on what was due us, and that's a commitment. He is under no obligation. He owes us rebels absolutely nothing. But he gives grace. If he was fair, if he was without grace, we wouldn't go to hell. We would be in hell. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. And we can be a part of his family when we repent and place our faith and trust in him and in what he has done. So submit to him. Love him. Live for him. This chapter, this act number one, is all about tragedy, but in the midst of tragedy, we see loyalty. Ruth being loyalty, loyal to her bitter mother-in-law, Naomi. So, uh, I'd like to finish by reiterating two um, points of application. Number one, trust God in tragedy and in difficulty. Trust God. How will you respond to difficulty? Your response to difficulty will teach you about yourself. Trust God. Or are you angry towards God? Trust God. I think, whenever I think of this kind of thing, I think of my grandfather. My grandfather has been through significant difficulty in his life. He lost his mother when he was in his early teens. He lost his wife when my dad was a senior in high school. He lost his daughter four years almost to the day after he lost his wife, my dad's twin sister, his daughter. I think, what difficulty. How can you go through that and still love God? I mean, he still talks about his wife. He'll be 93 this year. 
he still talks about his wife and he can't wait to go and see her. But he said to me in an email one time, as much as I want to see my wife, I want to see my Savior more. How? But for the grace of God. He would be faithful and trust God even through difficulty and tragedy. Number two, confess your anger to God. That's what bitterness is. It's anger. At least Naomi admitted that she was angry at God. Too often we look at life circumstances and we think we're just upset or perturbed or annoyed with a particular event or a particular circumstance, a particular tragedy in life. But our bitterness towards a tragedy could actually be anger towards God. We may ask things like, how did I end up with this person in marriage? Well, you're there. You've made a covenant. Don't give up on it. Why are my parents so difficult to live with? God has placed you there in this home. Trust him. Live by faith. You start blaming God for circumstances in life. And what we're saying is that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I started out full, but now I just feel empty. So today, confess your sin of anger to God. Confess your lack of faith. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. I mean, you hear that promise? He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Tomorrow is a new day. Actually, today is a new day. Confess today. Verse 22. After this pronouncement of bitterness, look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, just to remind you of where she's come from. She's called the Moabitess a lot. Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, just to remind you again of where she came from. And they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and at the beginning of barley harvest. Cliffhanger, something good is about to happen. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you so much for your faithfulness to your word and to your people. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just. You're faithful to your promises and you're just because someone has paid the penalty for our sins. And when we confess, you forgive and you cleanse. So Lord, will you forgive us of our anger and bitterness that we have towards you? Some of us have been bitter this week. Some of us are bitter now because of a circumstance 
that you have allowed to happen in our life. And Lord, when we go through difficulty, may we trust that you are in control and that you are for our good and for your glory. So no matter what it is, no matter how significant we may perceive it to be or not be, we know that you are in control and we can trust you. So Lord, thank you for teaching us this in the book of Ruth. We ask that you would continue to do so in the coming weeks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.